Right, okay, let's, uh, I think we should make a start, because it's, well, I make it nearly five past two, so let's, let's get cracking. Um, thank you very much for coming to the second lecture in this series on Old English in Context, trying to place the literature in its social and historical context. And as you can see today, I'm going to concentrate on Anglo-Saxon society, on the structures within the society which... Um, come out in the poetry and in the prose which you're studying and getting ready. So it, it goes back to this whole idea that I mentioned at the beginning of, of uh, last week's lecture that, you know, if you're trying to get good marks and you're trying to sort of like really engage with the literature, you have to look at it in its context. So I'm going to look at things like the land, the society, uh, the law and Christianity. I'll try and make it a bit more exciting than it sounds than that, but um, we'll go through various bits, and as I show you, I'll show how it sort of interlinks with the poetry and the literature. Okay, so first of all, what, does, what do you make of that? I'll give you a few seconds to study it and see if you can make any sense out of the mess that is there. I'll help you a bit because its orientation that way isn't very helpful. That's perhaps a bit more helpful. Right, okay, so it's obviously, oh, if you, hopefully you've guessed it's a map. Uh, I wouldn't base your travels around Europe or Asia on it, um, but it is a, an attempt by the Anglo-Saxons to map out the world. And there you can see the British Isles. So there's Ireland, uh, mainland Britain, all the various islands they've kind of got scattered out there, and that's Iceland. So here we have France, kind of stretched in Spain, etc. And what there's interesting, well, the interesting things about this is, first of all, the centre in the middle of the, is, uh, of the map is Jerusalem. Um, and then, of course, what happens around the edges that they had no concept, it would appear, well, obviously, in this map of North America, um, places like that, and the other um, continents. Okay, so it is their attempt to try and picture the world. And it is quite important. I'm going to start at a worldview and then get right down into the, um, the finer details of how the society and, and land was laid out. So when you come across references in the poetry, such as line 8a of Dream of the Root to the folds of the earth, this was their view of the world. You, will often, you can see now why we get the expression the four corners of the earth because uh, medieval cartographers, although we generally assume they didn't think the world was flat, that's a bit of a myth, they did seem to think it was round, they then struggled how you could draw maps within a sort of square page. And that's how you get this idea of corners of the earth. So, their worldview. There was this notion of Midanyeyad, the Middle Earth, which Tolkien picks up, which in Christian terms, is, is positioned between heaven and hell. And this kind of links to the Old Norse uh, word Midgard, okay, the middle yard, but again this idea that you are in the middle of something, and that plays into a lot of ideas we get in the literature in terms of like transition and movement and so on. They had a, an interesting word for the sea, Garsedge, they did use, they had many words for the sea, but one of them which comes up again and again and is quite interesting, Garsedge, how you Divide that is up to you. You could have it garth edge, as in the edge of the graph, the edge of land, 
or Gar Sedge, a spearman, and that kind of thinks, do they they have some sort of personification of a sea god or an idea that at the peripheral of the world there was something quite dangerous there. But the idea also of the shoreless sea comes up, this, this concept that if you stood, for example, on the Irish west coast and looked west, the sea would go on forever and ever and ever and no one really knew what was beyond it. It's certainly something we pick up. And there's a couple of examples um, from literature. Uh, The most obvious is Beowulf. At the beginning of Beowulf, there is this mention of Shield Sheffing, this character who appears, he sets up the Danish Empire, and then when he dies, they put him on this boat and they cast him out to the sea. And they say they have no idea where he goes or what's going to happen to him. Also, they don't really know where he came from. And that might be linked to a very old myth about uh, a fertility uh, God called King Sheaf, who appears from nowhere, sets up these, this uh, kingdom and then disappears. But it's the idea that what happens when you go out to sea? And that isn't, that isn't just in, um, in Old English literature, you get that in Celtic literature. Uh, St. Brendan, for example, sails out to the sea and finds this mystical land. So there was the idea that there was something beyond the West. The seafarer plays about these images, about journeying on the sea, about the mind wanting to go onto the sea, why you're dragged to the sea, etc. And also we get the idea, which you may have come across, of this, this Latin term, peregrinus pro amore dei, which is a pilgrim for the love of God, that you literally would just abandon all your worldly goods, walk or get in a boat and see where you ended up, because that's the way you would find out about life, and if that led to suffering, that led to wisdom. So you will often see links of the, maybe the seafarer's a poem about the Peregrinus Pro Amore Dei, this character who just sails around and gets, understands the hardship of what's around in the world, and that leads into true understanding. Anyway, so that's what they kind of viewed the world. Now let's have a look at how they used to live. So I'm going to use Google Maps, um, and we're going to concentrate on that bit of East Anglia. We zoom in. We can now see an Anglo-Saxon village. Um, it is an Anglo-Saxon village, a reconstructed Anglo-Saxon village, so they didn't have railway lines. Um, and what you can see there is, that if you think of, you might think of towns and villages as quite something quite elaborate, but really we're talking about a scattering of huts, of settlements, in those initial periods where they, they just, just about formed a sort of vague community. So when, again, we talk about Beowulf, we understand that Grendel is attacking the hall, that the retainers and other people live in these huts outside or in the Finsberg fragment when a hall is attacked or in Cunewulf and Cunehard in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle when the king is with his mistress in another hall. This is the type of settlement you should be thinking of. And these are the type of buildings you should be thinking of. These are what you can wander around in places like Westow or Bedesworld up in Sunderland and uh, engage in Anglo-Saxon things. Now, of course, these don't survive. They're reconstructions, as I said. Because they're made of wood, they're going to just rot away. There isn't anything left. So what we tend to do, when we, when they, or archaeologists tend to do, they, they produce imaginative things like these, which are site plans from digs. And generally what would happen is you'd have a rough idea where an Anglo-Saxon village was and where you thought their huts were and settlements, and then you would start digging down. You've probably seen Time Team, and you start digging down through the earth, and then you'll get discolorations and these are where the post holes went up to build their little huts and halls and so on. And where there's a gap, that was probably some form of entrance. 
Not particularly exciting, so let's use the, the aid of um, computer graphics. And I found this um, on the web. Uh, it's a, a reconstruction of Yavering. Let's try and get it a bit bigger. And um, basically you fly around it. Okay, so it does, it does stall, but that little brown blob in the middle, uh, my guess is it's Sparrow, uh, if you know your Anglo-Saxon mythology, but let's see. So we follow the sparrow through, and now we're getting a view of an Anglo-Saxon village. Okay, so there's a grand hall with its rafters reaching to the sky, exactly the description we get of halls in Beowulf, and there they all are, feasting around the fire, someone's telling a tale, and off we go again, following the sparrows. Do you know the tale about the sparrow? I'll tell you next week, in any case. And if you find this and download it, it probably plays better than it does on mine. Uh, you hear cows mooing and pigs oinking and things like that. Very, very uh, educational. Okay, so that actually is a reconstruction of probably a royal palace village because one of the um, features, which I don't know if I can find it, is this bizarre amphitheatre-type structure if you can see that there, so you have the um, possibly for preaching, possibly for some religious purpose, someone was there and then a sort of tiered seating area like you'd have at a, a concert or something like that. Um, and we know that that was what the construction was built. We're not entirely certain what it was for, but anyway. So quite elaborate buildings and so on. Now, central to the Anglo-Saxon village is the hall. It was a gathering place. It was the place you struggled out of your little hut and you set in probably to get warm and to engage in all kinds of social activities. We have descriptions of what went on in the halls. We know they played games. We know they got drunk. They feasted and so on. Okay? So it's well attested to in the literature. And it's probably the place, as I mentioned last time, where someone would come in and for entertainment purposes would recite something like Beowulf, maybe in over three nights. But because it is so central in literature, it almost becomes a symbol of the well-ordered society, a bit like the castle in Macbeth, okay? It's the symbol. So if you have a hall, you describe a hall, and everything's working along very well, then the society is in order. So when we get at the start of Beowulf, we have this ideal hall, Herod, which the Danes build. You are li linking that in your mind to the fact that the Danes are doing very well. But we know it's going to become a dysfunctional hall. There is trouble in the kingdom of Denmark and things will go wrong. And eventually, we're told quite at the beginning even, uh, that the hall will be destroyed. And of course, the hall just carries on to become our daily, or today's pubs. You may not think it does, but that's what it does. It became, of course, here in, a, in our own city, something more important, a residence for scholars. And gradually, people started living there and then they became colleges. But if you think about a village or a town, what is the central focus of it? It is the pub. That is where people go and engage in exactly the same activities that the Anglo-Saxons did, minus quiz nights and things like that. And I'm bringing back here the quote from Tacitus, to pass an entire day and night in drinking disgraces no one. Their quarrels, as might be expected with intoxicated people, are seldom fought out with mere abuse, but commonly with wounds and bloodshed. So again, you will often get reference in the literature to people getting excessively drunk in the hall, bragging about what they're going to do, or occasionally having a punch-up and killing someone. Right, let's think a bit more about the landscape. So, 
I said last week, it's a very long period. So when I make statements, you know, we have to qualify them by saying, well, what period are we talking about of the Anglo-Saxons? Because by the end of the, of the time, in the 11th century, things had changed dramatically. But when we start out, what we envisage is it would have been small tribes, there would have been very strong family ties in the, stri- in the tribe, and that's what kept things together. And they depended on notions of loyalty and family bonds, which we'll come back to in a second. So it's based around, usually when we do the digs, we find there is a long hall or a great hall. And I was, I was very struck, actually, and... I went to the Native American Museum um, in Washington, I think it is. Um, I can't remember where I went. Uh, And they had lots of exhibits about the discoveries that they'd made about Native Americans. And in their settlements, they often had a long hall or a hall where the community would gather. So it's not uncommon. Over time, they grew into larger settlements, as you would expect, as, as happens now, I mean, small towns become bigger towns, become cities eventually. And that's what happened in Anglo-Saxon England. Some were abandoned, some um, grew, and eventually by the end we, are what we have what we probably would call a city. I mean, nothing on the scale of what we have nowadays, but by their standards, quite large. Some of them just grew out of commerce, some of them grew for military purposes because they were strategically positioned. To accommodate the administration of this land because of course we have kingdoms governing these places they start dividing their land into shires the old English word is as you would expect S-C-I-R and these were generally ruled by an elderman so he would rule a group of shires I'm going to talk a bit about the um, social classes in Anglo-Saxon in a second but anyway that's what would happen and shires would be named after the principal town in the shire so, Wilton, Wiltonshire, our modern-day Wiltshire. Hampton, which is very on, it was on the south coast, so it became Southampton, Hamptonshire, and so on. And that's how you get the names for your shires. And most of the shire boundaries that were in existence in Anglo-Saxon survived up until the early 1970s, when I think it was Ted Heath who changed them all, or it might have been Howard Wilson. can't remember. Probably for vote rigging. The shire was then divided into what we call hundreds, um, so groupings of, of smaller lands, etc., and um, you, these had administrative purposes and legal purposes as well. In the Dane law, if you remember, England is divided, if you follow, it is an A road, and I can't remember which one, but it's, it's kind of like the M6 uh, going down and then the M1. Anything to the north east of that, you could imagine, is Dane law. They had wapentakes. So you can imagine it's sort of a rough area of land you think you could raise a small army or enough some people to help you fight in and then these were divided into hides which is a small unit of land probably enough land to keep your average family ticking along per annum so quite a developed structure on how how the land uh, worked and how it was administered land ownership how you knew if you owned a bit of land well of course there was the tradition which I mentioned last uh, term about you would know the boundaries of your land, you would beat the bounds, the children of the village would remember the boundary and so forth and we have those surviving charters and we get a lot of reference to book land, book land where it's written down what you own and it attempts to describe what you own. So now when we come across the character Elderman Birtnoff in the Battle of Molden you know that he, he ruled 
quite a substantial amount of land in East Anglia. But also, he had a military purpose. So we're talking by the end of the 10th century, it was, it was his responsibility to raise the army for East Anglia to fight the Vikings and lose. Okay, let's move on to some discussions about society. And here we get a lot from, from the texts, which you may or may not have studied. So here's a, here's a bit from Alfred's Colloquy, which uh, hopefully you've come across, a teaching text, which is a beautiful vignette of uh, Anglo-Saxon professions. And here is uh, the conversation with the ploughman. So it's not, there is no not a severe enough winter that I dare lurk at home because fear of my Lord's anger. And when I have yoked the ox and put the shear and the coulter onto the plough, fasten it onto the plough, then I must plough an acre or more. And then the guy sitting in the front says, oh, that's a terrible struggle. And he says, yes, Lord, it is a terrible struggle because I'm not free. Now, it's the key thing at the end. I'm not free. What does that imply? Well, it tells us, which we already know from other documents, that slavery um, was uh, apparent in Anglo-Saxon England. We know from law codes that slaves had to obey certain laws and um, penalties on the slaves were different from those who were free. And we also have lots of manumission documents which release slaves. So when you were getting old and you were about to say, right, I'm past it now, I'm going to go and live in a monastery, I'm going to free all my slaves, and those documents survive. And there is a little picture from an Anglo-Saxon manuscript describing our ploughman. There he is, not free, and he's his shear and his coulter, and then he's ox yoked. And even in, when he describes it, he even has a little boy with a stick who prods the oxen and goads them on. So, basic society structure. Let's just pin it down quite quickly. I mean, it's, it's fairly obvious, but just in case you haven't picked it up. So, there's a king at the top. Um, Undoubtedly, they started as just the people who successfully led your tribe in war or were successful in battle, but they were chosen. So this idea of the divine right to kingship, this nonsense that the uh, later monarchs came up with, and thankfully we paid to that in the uh, Civil War, um, is not there. You chose who was the most sensible leader, who was going to lead you, who was going to be successful for your tribe. So it's not a case of automatic succession. It generally is from the same family, but there were people who could choose. One of the groups was the Witan, this notion of a gathering of wise people who could then choose. So when we get to, even to the uh, succession problems of 1066, there is discussion of the fact that Harold was chosen to be king. He didn't just say, I am king. Underneath uh, the king, there are the earls and eldermen. Earls only appear after Canute's time. Um, it's from uh, an old Norse word. And they are governing large areas of land and responsible for the administration of that and the army. Famous earls you may have come across, Earl Godwin, um, who, whose son Harold, hence Harold Godwinson, becomes Harold II at, uh, and defeated at Hastings or Earl Leofrich from about the 1030s to 1050s, whose wife is perhaps more famous than he is. God Gifu. She was known as, uh, and is now known for stopping traffic on Magdalen Bridge on Monday nights, Godiva. 
Underneath the L's, there were the Thanes. Okay, so the Thane of Corda, that sort of thing. And you get reference in the poetry to the Ephesians, this bounding or this grouping together of the Thanes. Okay, we have a sort of splitting of the Ephesians, the, co- the com- company of Thanes, into Dugas and Yogas, the, the experienced Thanes and the young guns who are out to make a name of themselves. So when we think of Beowulf, he's a Yogas at the beginning. He's really out there to make some reputation for himself. That's what he's trying to do. But he is part of the Ephesians, the c- travelling companions, to, I suppose to explore the word a bit deeper, who accompanied the king and protected the king. Under them we have, or we eventually start to have reeves. So these are your tax collectors, your civil servants of the time who went out and collected things like the geld, the tax, which were usually based on the number of hides, hides you owned. Then we have the churls, which is why we have the word churlish. These are more or less free men who could till land, could own a certain amount of land, had certain rights. And then bottom of the heap, unfortunately, we have slaves. So that is... Anglo-Saxon society. And let me just show you an explanation of that even better than I can. You can't, you can't get away with not showing Monty Python the Holy Grail when you're teaching uh, medieval. But it's, 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 a, it's a lovely notion of how did, you know, how did medieval society get structured. I, don't, I didn't vote for you. You don't vote for kings. Well, how do kings emerge? You know, it's something which we should probably consider. So, Let's start thinking about society. What bound it together? I mean, you could just say, well, what binds present-day society together? And I would argue that it's none of the first three. It's probably just the law. If the law wasn't there, God knows what would happen nowadays. The streets would be running with blood. But anyway, what bound society together in the Anglo-Saxon period? And I'm going to come across or talk about four things. The comitatus, feuds, and exile, because they come up time and time again in the literature, and it's important to understand these. So first of all the comitatus. Again I take you back to Tacitus. When they go into battle it is a disgrace for the chief to be surpassed in valour, a disgrace for his followers not to equal the valour of the chief and it is an infamy and a reproach for life to have survived the chief and returned from the field. To defend, to protect him, to ascribe one's own brave deeds to his renown is the height of loyalty. So the comitatus the banding together, is, is a fairly simple idea. You have a leader, and then you have these things, these, um, you see this underneath him. And what happens is the leader will give you gold or land or whatever you want, and they will then protect you. They will be loyal to you to death in battle. And that's how it works. It's a very simple structure. You're loyal to the person above you. They reward you. It's kind of like what happens nowadays in jobs, um, if you do well, they'll give you a pay rise, that sort of thing. But I was trying to think if there is a modern day analogy, and I, I, the, the best I could probably come up with is sort of like the culture of gangsters where they're outside of the law, but what happens is you would protect, you would fight for your gang, and your reward is treasure or whatever, wealth, cars, whatever, so on. So it literally means a following or war band, and as I said, that's the standard notion. And that's why when you hear words for Lord, there, is, there are standard words for Lord in the poetry, but you will also come across words such as gold giver, ring giver, because they're giving out treasure, and that's something which you would be loyal to. It does lead to a secure society, if it works. When it fails, of course it doesn't, as it did later on in the Anglo-Saxon period. So, a good example, the wanderer. 
lines 23a to 29b. Hruzon heolster bira on ich heyan zonan ward winterkearig over wadama yabind sohta celedreorig sinkath brifan, the giver of treasure. I sought the hall, the giver of treasure, where I far or near might find in the Mead Hall my, my happiness. Someone who's going to look after me and will uh, understand what's, what I'm going through. So the wanderer plays with many ideas, but of course what he's saying is he's outside of society, he's looking for a lord to give him treasure. He's out of the commentator's relationship. Battle of Molden. This makes great play in it. Obviously towards the end of the poem when all of them stand up and say, well, I'm going to fight for him because he's dead and then he dies. Well, I'm going to do it because of this and then he dies and so on. That sort of bizarre... Uh, procession of lemmings at the end of the poem. But anyway, here we are. Throughout the poem you will see reference to the comitatus structure which works on a grand scale. So, this land, Ethelred's land, this is uh, Vietnam talking, he realises that the comitatus relationship for him is up to Ethelred, the king. And then down here the other people start talking about Ethelred's thane. They're there to defend the thane. So the, the structure sort of overlaps. bit more, a few more examples. The cross in the Dream of the Rood, an inversion of the commentators because the cross is there. He could save his Lord, i.e. Christ who climbs the cross. Quite how, I've never actually worked out. Um, anyway, I suppose he could fall, leap on the Romans and flatten a few of them and wave its cross beam. I don't know, anyway, but whatever it would do, it would do something. But anyway, the point of the poem is that it says... I could have saved my Lord, but actually I'm going to be the thing that kills it. Very odd. And Beowulf at the end, there's a big struggle about the commentators because he says, oh, I'm going to fight the dragon. Really stupid when you're 60 odd. But anyway, he goes off, I'm going to fight the dragon. And then when they realise he's going down for a third time, Wiglaf says, we should all be fighting with him and all the rest of them very sensibly leg it. Uh, we get this with the celebration of heroism throughout the poetry. You'll see often references to dolmen and loaf, judgment and praise. That's what they were after, okay? Because you want to be remembered in your commentators by your Lord for, for what the deeds you did. It doesn't always go well. Ethelred the Unready, this poor unfortunate who really had it stacked against him, um, Throughout his reign, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles, it more or less says the Comitatus breaks down. And that's probably why Battle of Molden appears as a poem. You know, it's reinforcing this idea you should be loyal. But in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, every time Ethelred's about to go and fight a battle, or, or often, people turn tail, or they suddenly join the other side, which is a bit disrupting to your battle plans. And even when he's brought back, he's, he's sent into exile, he legs it from England, and he's brought back in 1014... He's, when he's brought back, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle makes a point of saying Ethelred was allowed to come back as long as he agreed to rule justly and according to the, the rules that we've established. Which is a very odd little comment. What, one can only envisage that the sort of Witan or the, the noblemen of England said, all right, we'll have you back under these conditions. We don't have the document he signed. We don't know what he signed. But it's very interesting. It predates the Magna Carta. For even in the early 11th century, we had a contract with the monarchy what they could and couldn't do. Okay, feuds. I just, it's, it's a great film. Well, Yojimbo is equally good. But anyway, it is a film, of course, if you've ever seen it, where Clint Eastwood just plays two people, two families off, literally at the end of each other's street, and makes a load of money out of a feud. 
Feuds are very, very important. They come up again and again in literature. And there is an excellent book by Fletcher called Blood Feud. It's called something like Murder and, Murder and Feuding in Anglo-Saxon Society. And it, it appears like it's going to be a trashy novel, but it's actually a very, very well uh, historically researched book and quite, quite detailed in places. So, literally, a feud, it's very simple. I'm in this gang, you're in that gang, I kill one of yours, you try and kill one of mine, okay? You know that famous quote from the untouchables? They hurt one of us, we kill one of them, that sort of thing. And that's how it, that's how it goes on. The problem with feuds is it can spiral out of control, as you can imagine. There wouldn't be much left. The sort of General Hague's philosophy of the First World War. But feuds do appear. So in Beowulf we have the, the mega-feud of God versus Cain. That's mentioned quite at the beginning, but in terminologies we would associate with feuds. Grendel is having a feud with Hrothgar. And I think there are about 14 or 15 mentions of feuding in Beowulf. Subplots, which are going on underneath the main plot, which eventually will bubble to the surface and, and change things dramatically. The Husband's Lament, a nice little poem, an odd little poem, possibly a reply to the wife's... Um, sorry, the husband's message, not the husband's lament. Um, uh, might be, a, be he's been exiled because of a feud. Who knows? Wolf and the Adwoker, who knows what the hell's going on in that poem? Um, I've no idea, and I've read it for 20 years. But anyway, there's possibly a feud gone on. There's reference to a feud. So something's happened to split whatever the person or thing is that's speaking from whatever there's been separated by. And feuds were recognised. So when you get across, come across a feud in a law code, they don't just say, no feuding, that's, that's naughty, stop that. They say, well, if a feud's going to happen, these are the rules it should happen under. And Alcuin, who's an Anglo-Latin writer, you know, a monastic writer, very, very famous, uh, 8th century, talks about a character he's just introduced his court, and he says, oh, he was very good because he perpetuated and saw through a feud. He's almost saying, well, this is acceptable behaviour. Exile. Exile is made a lot of in Old English literature, and you have to ask yourself, well, why was it so bad? What was so bad about being exiled? I mean, if, you know, if you're sent to Coventry, to use the, the phrase, nowadays you can live with it, you just sit and watch TV. It's not so bad, not so bad. But it's obviously absolutely critical to the Anglo-Saxons. And why was it so bad? Well, if you think about it, if you're exiled, you're by yourself. There's no social security, there's no national health service, there is no army or police force to defend you. You are by yourself. There is no one to fight the feud for you. There is no one to give you treasure. There's no one to look after you. There's no one for you to serve. So it is pretty much a death sentence exile. And that's why the wanderer moans about it and is very concerned about being exiled. And again... Why are people exiled? Possibly because of feud, as in the wanderer kind of hints something's gone wrong, or the wife's lament, or the husband's message. Or in Deor, you get the feeling he's, he's exiled at the end, he's lost this battle to become the poet of their Heodonings, but he seems to be outside society. Beowulf's father, he was clearly exiled, as a reference to that, when he, he, Beowulf goes and says, look, I'm going to fight for you, Hrothgar, and I will defeat Grendel, he says, well, why are you doing that? And he says, because you looked after my father when he was exiled from our land. The apostles, a bizarre sort of interpretation, but it is true, this is how the Anglo-Saxons looked at it. When Christ dies, the apostles are without a leader. They are exiled from their land. They are wandering around. And when you read the Acts of the Apostles, it's very much as if it's a, a retainer 
without their leader who is exiled. And even the cross at the beginning of the dream of the rood. It's quite happily standing there at the edge of the forest, ha ha ha, enjoying itself, talking to the other trees, one would assume, gets ripped up from its roots, it's exiled, it's changed into something else. So very, very common. Now, just one more point before I, I show you another clip of film or talk about another bit of literature, is women in society... There is this idea that really uh, women didn't exist in history till Elizabeth I, that they were sidelined, they had no influence on society, none whatsoever, they were completely powerless and so on. This to a certain degree is true, when the Normans came along, they certainly ground them into the dust, but in Anglo-Saxon society, women had a lot of power. Now, it, it is not as much as men, it has to be said, there was still that sort of... Um, uh, unfair bias there, but they did have a lot of power. For example, they could be landowners. We know from place names that they owned settlements. We know from wills they could bequeath land, something which was removed from women later on in, in the medieval period. They become very powerful. They could run monastic houses, such as Abbas Hild, which is mentioned in Cadman's Hymn. And they could be queens. It could be a sort of ceremonial queen, as in Wealthio in, in Beowulf. Or they could be warriors. They could lead armies into battle. Athelflad of Mercia, very famous warrior queen from just after Alfred the Great. Or they could be these fantastic political animals, such as Queen Emma, who uh, is, is, a, is a joy to read about what she gets up to in the 11th century, make your hair curl. And in literature, there's, there's statements, there's no women in Anglo-Saxon literature. This is complete and utter nonsense. Three poems there to start with, Judith, Eleanor, Juliana, all with a strong female character right at the centre. The wife in The Wife's Lament, it's female there. Wealtheo in Beowulf, she is a, a peace weaver, she brings people together, she stops feuds. There's the speaker in Wolf and the Handwerker, probably a female, who knows. There are loads of female saints, so there are strong female characters in Old English literature and it is often overlooked. So, let's try and put this together and think of a, uh, a famous scene from the literature um, of the period and how that is playing with all these ideas. So, exile, feud, the whole role of women. That's from, if you haven't seen, that's from Beowulf and Grendel, which is uh, an Icelandic version, I think. It's in English, but it um, came out about three years ago of Beowulf. You know, it's like buses... You wait for years and you get that three versions of Beowulf all at the same time. None of them, of course, pay any relevance to the story whatsoever. But anyway, in this case, this, it's, it's all right up to a point. Um, now, the attack by Grendel's mother on the hall is very interesting for all the reasons I said. First of all, it's an attack on the symbol of a secure society. Hera is meant to be that, okay? So when Grendel's attacking it and Grendel's mother comes in and attacks, that's what you're getting an attack on. It's the attack at the roots of a civilised structured society. What you also may say, why is she attacking? Well, she's attacking because her son's arm has got ripped off, which is kind of, you know, you might get a bit pissed off about that. And that's why in that scene she sees Grendel's arm, which they've held as a trophy, pinned to the wall, and she goes a bit uh, loopy. So, it's a feud. There is a feud going on. There is a feud earlier between Grendel and Rothgar, and Grendel actually subverts the idea of him because he won't parley. It's even mentioned in the poem. He won't parley. He just wants to continue the feud. But the feud is, is continued then and becomes the feud between Grendel's mother and Beowulf to a certain degree. And it becomes slightly, you know, more ambiguous. Who's right and who's wrong? 
Well, she's got every right to go and perpetuate the feud because her son's just been crippled and is about to die. So it's, she's within every right to go and try and bring the feud on and fight, fight Beowulf. Exile, the Grendels, uh, the Grendels? It's like a family. The Grendels, anyway, Mr. and Mrs. Grendel and their son um, are exiled. There's a big point about the fact that they live in the moors, the mirrors out there, you know, they're not living in a village, they're not living in houses, they are outside of society, they are in a landscape which would have put the fear of God into the Anglo-Saxons. And of course, it is a woman. So there is mention of this, there's a lot about description about she is in woman form, but she's coming in and suddenly she takes the fight to the men. So it, that whole scene, that whole point in, in Beowulf, attacks all of these things which I've been trying to build up now about accepted forms of society. It really takes them head on. Oh, exactly, to pick up, I mentioned earlier on Macbeth, you know, what's happening there is Shakespeare puts out, well, this is what you would normally do as a host, this is what you should do as a thane, this is what you should do in your castle, etc. And, of course, Macbeth does all the opposite, and that's what undermines and makes him such a, a nasty man. Macbeth did exist, of course, and if you read about Anglo-Saxon history, you will read about what happens with him in the early 10th, 11th century. Anyway, so a very, very structured society. It moves, to pick up my point last week, from something like this, a tribal leader with a comitatus of the young and the old, churls and slaves, and then eventually we get a much more oh, a highly administered society, king, thanes, elderman, reeves, churls, slaves, bound together predominantly by ties, loyalty, honour, blood feuds, Weregill, which I'll talk about in a second, small settlements, and moves to things like kings, duties, there's a legal system, which I'll come on to in a bit, and town cities and fortified towns, okay? So things do change. By the end of the uh, time, they were also playing around with rather advanced theories on um, society and, and structure. And you will often get mentioned to the, um, the three levels of society, the three um, uh, roles in society. They talk about laboratories, bellatories, oratories, those who work, those who fight, those who pray. And they start to play around with this idea, how this almost be like a, it's a triangle of responsibilities, how it fits together and how it keeps society ticking along. And you'll get that in Alfred the Great's writing, but also played about with by Alfred and Wolfstand, so towards the end of the period. They were concerned with things like just and unjust kings. It's not just you're a king, you can do whatever you want. They had clear rules, clear views on what a king should and shouldn't do. And Ethelred obviously overstepped the mark. So Alfred talks about this in his translation of Gregory's Pastoral Care. Wolfstand writes a big political treatise on how society should be structured and the duties of people, institutes a polity. Alfred talks about model kings. He puts them up and says they were a model king because they did all the right things. And they weren't just a bunch of barbarians who just like hitting each other over the head. Even by, by the time of the turn of the millennium, Alfred is writing about what would we consider a just and unjust war. So he knew, and he was trying to impress on people outside of the monastery, that there were certain limits to violence. You couldn't just go and keep beating people up. You had to justify warfare. So we should send that to Tony Blair, shouldn't we? Okay, right. Just quickly, we're just going to talk about law codes now. Um, I mentioned that by over the period of time and by the end they had a very well-developed legal system. But there we are. The oldest living, or the oldest prose document, I think, in English is the law codes of Athelbert of Kent, 
from 6.02 to 3, which isn't bad. Law codes are fantastic, tell us all kinds of things, but I thought I'd just pull out something amusing. If you had any of those injuries, on the right is the injury, and on the left, sorry, your left is the injury, and on the right is the fine. So this is if you've done it to someone else, okay? And, um, well, don't worry about how much a shilling was worth. A pound could basically keep you alive for a year. Anyway, so, they're not in order. Um, so, which do you think the Anglo-Saxons would have been the most valuable? That is, um, that is the limb that allows men to um, have children. Okay, so, which could be pierced. Which, so, it depends if you're a male or female in the audience. You might value things differently here. But anyway, it's not how much you pay to have this done to you. It's how much you would get in compensation. What would you prefer to lose? Probably your front teeth, I would think. Yep, front teeth. So you can, you, hardly any fine. Hardly any fine. Anyway, so the big thing they think is if you go blind or if you're lame. So again, you know, that kind of makes sense because there isn't, well, a national health service, there isn't anything like that, so it's really debilitating your ability to make uh, money or survive. And law, the law codes and the law structures were, were fairly well advanced. I found a, uh, as you can see, a Blue Peter um, illustration there of a trial by ordeal. But to begin with, we have blood feuds. We have this idea of where guild, the money you would pay for someone, uh, compensation. So if you kill someone, it will say you've got to pay their kin five shillings or whatever, or if it's only a slave, nothing. Don't worry about it. But gradually, as society becomes more structured, they do require a legal system. Um, it's fines, punishment, compensation to the victim, not to society. You don't sit in prison. You pay money or you do some compensation to the victim or the victim's family. Quite an interesting notion. What you see as you look at the law codes over the period of time is the king exerts more and more control. So by the time of Alfred, the king is one of the dominant figures in the law codes that grew up. And these were administered by, quite, again, quite an elaborate legal system. So there were shire and shire courts. There were hundred courts. Do you remember I was talking about the structure of society? Um, criminal cases, really bad cases, would go up there, but they could, the hundred courts could deal with sort of minor compensation claims. And there were special courts, such as in the, um, the Thridding, the division of Yorkshire into three. There was a riding court as well, because it was such a big county. And finally, you do get the emergence. This is what everyone thinks. This is how law was entirely governed in medieval society. That's simply not true. I know it looks fun to sort of have people holding hot iron bars and see if they can walk ten paces. And if they can, they're innocent. And if they can't, they're guilty. Or chucking women into rivers and seeing if they drown, they're innocent. That sort of thing. But it only does emerge. It is, it is there, and it, it, it does come through. Um, but it's not the sole way of dealing with the law. So when you look at Alfred's Law Codes, um, you should look at it as a literary document. It opens with a discussion of the Ten Commandments because he's making reference to this is my law, this is God's law, the two are the same. And what you will also see in Law Codes is there's different crimes and punishment depending on who is, who is the victim or, and who is the criminal. Okay? So if you're doing a crime against the victim or the king, then that's one thing, but if you're doing it against the clergy or the clergy have committed a crime, there's another. So you see a separation. 
Okay? Ecclesiastical law and secular law. One of the arguments is, for why law codes start to emerge, is if you think about it, the answer is in that second bullet point. Who was in exile without protection from a tribe? Who had deliberately removed themselves from society support structures? And the answer is the clergy, the monks, the hermits. They had taken themselves out of the family bond and gone and joined another family, which wasn't really renowned for its military prowess. So, so law codes possibly emerged, 602, what's that, three years after the conversion, first law code down in Kent, law codes possibly emerge as a, as a way of protecting the clergy as well. And you will see references, as I said, to ecclesiastical law and secular law, so one canute and two canute, one would be the law codes for you and me and normal people, and the other one for the monks and nuns. So, a final point in leading to next week, I have mentioned Christianity and I will be talking next week about the religions of Anglo-Saxon England. Christianity does, of course, come um, to Britain well before the Anglo-Saxons, Roman Britain, Roman Empire, who had been Christianised under Constantine. Um, so we do have uh, remainders of Christian shrines and Christian worship well before the Anglo-Saxons. So the indigenous population were Christian. Um, it then, when the Anglo-Saxons come and bring their pagan beliefs with them, you get this uh, drive to um, reconvert or convert them, the Anglo-Saxons in this case, back to Christianity in the north from the Irish and then in the south coming from Rome with St. Augustine. Those two different ways of tackling Christianity clash at the Synod of Whitby in 664 um, when Anglo-Saxon decides quite sensibly to side with Rome because it's slightly bigger than Ireland. But the major impacts from Christianity, as we will see next week, are in impacts on literacy, education, libraries. These are the powerhouses, the publishing powerhouses. And also that, as I mentioned last week, the church starts to accumulate wealth and that eventually leads to the downfall of Anglo-Saxon England, or is one of the reasons. And the main reason is because church and state merge towards the end period. Lovely image from the Newminster Charter, 966 AD, where we have the king presenting the charter. For the minister, this is King Edgar, flanked by Mary and St. Peter. But what this image was telling people when they looked at it was that church and state were linked. In Edgar's time, probably too much. Okay, so a bit of a trot through Anglo-Saxon society, hopefully linking it in key points to what was happening in the literature. As I said, it was multi-structured. It's a very, very complicated beast, but I've tried to pick out the, the general points you need to uh, know. It's based on close ties. The hall is a central character or symbol in Anglo-Saxon literature, and now we know why, because it was the bonding unit of the village or the family or the tribe. Exile is absolutely key, because it pretty much is a death sentence. As the kingdoms merge and we get something approaching uh, a kingdom of England, uh, law becomes the bond, so those, those loose ties, people start to move about a lot more and law becomes the main bond and we start to see emerging of church and state. So, that's it. Next week, I'm going to be looking at the monsters, the sort of the mythological creatures, elves, dwarves, giants, witches, all those sorts of things. I'm going to find out if you could have hacked it as a monk and I'm going to tell you what possible use you might have for a dung beetle. Thank you very much.